Good morning, guys. Good to see you. It's so lovely to see so many people as well. Um, uh, today is Hannah's day for tears, uh, but it is it's an emotional thing to look out um, at a room that has not been this full in a while and to see um, so many people together worshiping Jesus. Um, so this week, we're beginning our new sermon series, which is going to take us up to the beginning of December, and we're walking through the book of Ephesians together, which is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And Ephesians has been described as the gospel of the church. It's a letter which expounds on so many elements of the Christian life lived together with others, which is what we want because we're the people of God together and we want our lives to be shaped after the life of Christ. A little bit of necessary history as we approach this book. It was written by Paul, um, but as with a few letters of his, there's some kind of scholarly contention over whether it was actually Paul or was it someone else? Was it written by someone in his circle? Because some of the writing style seems to kind of differ from that of his other letters. Um, there's a, a Pauline scholar called N.T. Wright, and he seems convinced that it was written by Paul, and so I'm going to take his word for it, and you can choose whether you decide to do that yourself. But as a side note, it really matters what you think about the Bible. And so you should never be afraid to ask questions. You should never be afraid to look at it from different perspectives, to deal robustly with this word. Because the Bible is a really important book. And so sometimes when we come to it, we need to ask really important questions. This book was written not necessarily to a single church in, the, uh, in Ephesus, but it's thought to have maybe been a circular letter that was passed around a few different communities in the Ephesus area. And Paul was in prison when he wrote it. All of those little details affect our reading of it. They're not just like random facts to fill out the beginning of a sermon. So remember that wider context as you listen today, but as, as we study this book over the term. We're starting at the beginning of the book today, and sometimes the focus of this particular section has been kind of the nitty-gritty details of what it discusses. But the invitation that I think Paul is maybe giving us here in how he starts his letter is actually an invitation to a bird's-eye view, to get the long view which informs our reading of everything else. A little bit of uh, trivia about me. Uh, I don't climb hills. I have never bagged a Monroe, and I have little desire to, and I'm sorry, I know that that is tantamount to treason in Scotland. I want to express my specific apology to Kenny Roy. Please still be my friend. Um, but because on occasion I've had little choice but climb a hill, uh, and you know, because I have like an imagination, um, I know that the bigger view is really important to inform everything else along the way. If I didn't have a vision of the vista that was waiting for me at the top, whether I knew what it was going to be like or not, it would be very hard to find any kind of purpose in the step-by-step -step stuff, and it would absolutely lead to a lot of frustration. Not that the vision makes it any easier to climb, but it does vastly change my long-view perspective. 
And there's some stuff in here in this beginning section which is both really encouraging in one way and also confusing in another and has been used in lots of different ways over the history of the church. Stuff like predestination, which is a tricky concept to get your head around. And don't worry if you're not sure what that means. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's stuff like that that the church has fought and argued about and split up over centuries about stuff that brings up some really big questions in us. And if we sat and stared only at that with no bigger vision, with no bigger perspective, it would become very hard and it does eventually become very hard to find any kind of purpose in the walk we're on. And so therefore our view becomes incredibly narrow. So as we approach today, I want to invite you to join Paul in this bird's eye view that I believe he is giving us here, to let the vista of Jesus inform your approach to this letter and all that it contains. So we're going to read it together, Ephesians chapter 1. It's going to be in the screen behind me as well, or you can follow along, or you can just listen. All are valid options. So this is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let me pray. So God, we come around your words with reverence, but with curiosity. And we want to hear from you today. So will you come and breathe on these words and open them up to us in a new way and be present in a way that only you can be to each one of us. Amen. So 
So across this passage, you may have noticed it, we, we see this one idea repeated again and again. We see these repeated iterations of the phrase, in Christ, or something like it. Paul is beginning here as he means to go on with a heavy focus on the person and the work of Jesus. And I think that that might be really important um, for us to get our heads around as we open this book up together. What does it mean to be in Christ? And specifically with the focus that we see in this passage, what does it mean to be chosen in Christ? What difference does that in Christness make to our lives and to our way of being in the world? What, what kind of long view, bird's eye perspective could that give us? When our identity is defined as being in Christ, it speaks about us, so it tells us some important things about ourselves, but it also speaks about Jesus, perhaps more pressingly. It tells us something about him. So we're going to start by looking at Jesus, because if you notice, that's what Paul does too. From verse 3, we see an overflowing, unfettered declaration of praise of Christ and what he has done and the effect that that has. And perhaps that doesn't seem that revolutionary. I mean, it is the Bible after all. But I think it might be because Jesus said himself in Luke 6, 45, it says the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I wonder what your heart is full of right now. What would the overflow of, of your heart be right now? Would it be praise of Christ and all that he has done? It might be. It also might not be. And this is not a guilt trip because I think most of the time the overflow of my heart is more about my troubles and my thoughts rather than the bigger picture of Jesus. And the question that then that leads me to is, well, how well do I know him? How well do I know him? Because a life held in Christ is a life that knows Christ. Paul knew Jesus. And the overflow of his heart at this point became one of praise. And Paul was in prison, so he wasn't short on trouble. I would wonder that perhaps this overflow of praise that Paul was pouring out in this letter here was more of a determined declaration in the face of his trouble rather than despite of it. We are not in prison, but our mental, emotional, physical, spiritual health has been strained and often compromised in the past 18 months. And so an overflow of praise like Paul's here, it, it doesn't have to be blind to our reality. I think it can still feel true to our experience. The question, though, that I want to come with is, how well do I know him? How well do I know Jesus? This summer, 
the staff team and elders have been reading a book together called Surprise the World by Michael Frost. Maybe some of you have read it as well. And in it, he tells a story of how he was speaking at this Christian surfers conference in Australia, which just sounds like way too cool for me to ever be at. Um, and at one point, he asked this room full of surfing enthusiasts um, who their favorite surfer was. And the room kind of erupted with loads of people shouting things out and, and one name of a surfer called Kelly Slater was given most and so Mike asked the audience okay well tell me what do you know about Kelly Slater and the room went nuts these people were telling like very you know way too much detail about this guy's life they shouldn't have known him I would worry that maybe some of them were stalking him with the detail that they gave but you know really random facts about his life incredible detail and there was no end to their enthusiasm about him and then later in the session, he asked them, tell me, what do you know about Jesus? It's the same question, different subject. And the people he were, was asking, they were committed evangelists. They really loved Jesus. They weren't there just on a whim, you know. Um, they did, they were living lives that were shaped by the gospel. But their answer this time was really different. And I kind of, I can see um, why it was like that. I wonder if maybe my answer might be the same sometimes. There was no like excited eruption um, it was a lot more sedated, things like he is Lord, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, all true, statements of faith, you know, maybe a little doctrinal more than anything else. Why didn't they speak about Jesus in the same way that they spoke about Kelly Slater? Why don't we speak about Jesus in the same way that we speak about someone else that we love and are passionate about? They did know him. They did know him. But how deep, how deep was that knowing? A life held in Christ is a life that knows Christ. How deep is your knowing? How well do you know him? What would it be like for you to learn Christ again? Because when I look to this passage with the lens of wanting to learn Christ, I see it so differently. Instead of seeing it as something which speaks first about me and my chosenness and my safety and my inclusion and stopping short there, my perspective is blown open and I see the vast and incredible generosity of God in Christ who doesn't just give a portion but gives every spiritual blessing, who doesn't just clear the slate a little bit, but whose freely given grace is vast enough to declare blamelessness, who doesn't just let us in the door and let us edge through, but who brings us in as family. I see love that is not drip-fed or shared out among many, but love that is lavished. It is extravagant language here. When I learn Christ here, I learn of his deep and abiding commitment to extravagance. Being chosen in Christ is not about a so-called safety. It's about his definitive sovereignty. And his reign is good. His reign is this good. 
So with that vista in our sight, learning and living in the extravagance of Jesus, how does this speak about us? What does it say about us here? What do we learn about ourselves? We learn, I think, that the extravagance of Jesus is big and wide, but that it is also exacting and specific. Because these things we talked about, these big concepts of freely given grace and lavished love, the forgiveness, the inclusion, the blessing, they're not administered abstractly. They are given with great care to us. God's lavished love is lavished on you and on me. Blamelessness and redemption is a gift given to you and to me. Being chosen and included is deeply personal to you and to me. We receive the extravagance of God's love for us knowing that it is not chop and change. It is not sometimes present and sometimes not. We receive that extravagance knowing that the abundant love, the abundant grace, the abundant mercy is integral to who God is to who Christ is, we are experiencing the unchanging and irrefutable, loving, gracious, and merciful character of God. And he is who he will always be. He cannot be anything else. So then when we come to the trickier stuff here, the stuff that we have a question about, maybe you've never even really thought about it, or maybe you've thought about it a lot, but it's stuff that has been squirmed over for a long time. We need this view to see it. We need this view. Predestination is a concept within Christian theology that God has ordained everything that will happen, including the salvation of some and not of others. Can you see why that might be a little tricky? I'm not gonna unpack it fully here today because we don't have time and I also would not pretend to have that skill. But when I approach it, I think that there are a few things that are important. First of all, to presume that anyone could fully know the will or inclination of God is folly, pure folly. Do I know what he is like? Can I sit in the light of his loving character? Absolutely. Do I know everything about God? Has all mystery been cracked? Of course not. There is way more that is unknown than is known. The focus on something like predestination and what that means for us reveals more, I think, about some of our core heart motivations than it does about anything else. It uncovers the preoccupation we often find present in our faith about who is in and who is out. And it gives us a narrow and presumptuous view of God and what he is like and what he may do. And I wonder that in the process of that, we lose sight of what God actually wants us to know about him. I said earlier that our chosenness in Christ is less about our safety, our inness, and it's more about God's sovereignty. 
And that's how I want to approach God, knowing and accepting that I can bask in and receive his goodness to me, but never losing sight of the bigger picture, that it is all about him and his reign and his sovereignty, that that is the vista that I am heading towards. Because look at that whole sentence in that first chapter. We're looking at around verse 11 here. Often we take the first bit and classically we forget what it says at the end, which is generally where the most important bit comes. It says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory might be for the praise of his glory. That's the point. In simpler terms, it's about him. It's first for him. Any grace we receive, any love we have lavished upon us, any chosenness or inclusion that is given to us, any mercy or forgiveness that we find, yeah, it is for us, but ultimately it is for him. It's for the praise of his glory. How will you shape your life so that it's for the praise of his glory? What would that mean? Perhaps it will be a a rewiring of the overflow of your heart so that the overflow is praise. Even if the praise is quiet or hard, what could that look like? Maybe it's something simple like practicing gratitude even when you don't feel like it. Or perhaps it will be in a relearning of Christ. Maybe your way of bringing praise to God will be to get to know his son better, even if you've known him for a really long time. To immerse yourself in the stories of Jesus so that you know him better. How might you do that? Well, maybe it's about getting familiar with the gospels again reading them, listening to them, choosing to relearn the story. Perhaps it will be diving into the abundance of God that's displayed in Christ, opening up to receive that abundant love, that abundant mercy, that abundant grace, not settling for half measures because there are no half measures presented here by Paul. Practically, that may look like paying attention to your thought life. What are the narratives you repeat to yourself? What are the things that you speak out over yourself? Are they words that reflect the abundance given in Christ? Or maybe it's about loosening your grip on the idea of your safety and resting in the sovereignty of this God that you can trust. Yielding to a God who is far and beyond what you can comprehend is not always easy. But taking daily small steps towards trusting this big God is a good thing to cultivate. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, 
we were just singing about how you are king. Father, we were singing about how all of heaven roars your name. There is a bigness in you that we cannot comprehend, but we are welcomed into, and we don't have to stand at a distance. So Holy Spirit, I welcome you to come and do your work amongst us in the quietness of our hearts. Will you rewire us so that the overflow of our hearts is praise? Jesus, we want to relearn you. We want to be those who know you better. We want to rest in the abundance of God where we have settled for half measures. Will you blow that wide open for us again? And where we have made it all about us, deciding in our own hearts whether we're in or out, or whether others are in or out, loosen our grip, loosen our grip, and help us to rest in the sovereignty of a God that we can trust. As we worship you again, we choose to yield to you. Help us to do that, whether we want to or not. Help us to yield to you. Amen.